So if you are a guest with us, we just we work our way through scriptures and you happen to have joined us as we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we kind of stopped in the middle. There was just so much in this passage. We stopped in the middle of a sentence, really. So I'm going to go back and read from verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 3 through verse 13. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this to you? We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. And our passage for today, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor through slander and praise we are treated as impostors yet are true as unknown yet well known as dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just as a a short recap, these false teachers had come into the church of Corinth and they'd sown some doubt about Paul and about his ministry, about his authority as an apostle. So Paul was forced to defend his role, not for his own sake, not because he was upset about what people thought about him, but because he wanted them to accept the gospel that he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus to preach when he was on the road to Damascus and when Ananias prayed over him. He knew that God had given him that role as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he he began this section, as we just read in verse 3, by explaining that his team endeavored to put no obstacles in others' way so that there would be nothing to keep the people from hearing the good news of Jesus. When he was in Corinth, he didn't ask for uh, any kind of uh, reimbursement. He paid his own way. He didn't ask for contributions. He worked with his own hands because he didn't want anybody to say, well, you know, he's here to make money, and yeah, he, he has an interesting teaching, but it's really all about him getting money. He didn't want anything in the way of them hearing the gospel. And that should be how we live our lives as well, right? When we share with the neighbor, when we have conflicts in the church, out of the church, we should always be striving not to put anything in anyone's way so that they can hear and receive the gospel. That's the most important thing. Not what they think about us. That has of no consequence whatever, right? It's about them receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. That is what is eternal, amen? 
The troubles they endured were evidence that their ministry was unselfish and was sincere. That illustrated the difference between Paul's team and the false teachers, who probably lived in relative comfort and expected financial support from, from the Corinthians. In our passage today, Paul continues by listing nine contrasting perspectives in his ministry, and they're really heaven's reality versus the world's viewpoint. Verse 8 again, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. The first one, through honor and dishonor. It reminds me of Brother Singh's testimony. Um, Brother Singh is a, uh, a local missionary in India, and now um, through his ministry, tens of thousands of church plants have taken place. But when he began, after the Lord miraculously healed him as a young teenager, he just, he didn't know anything about the Bible. He just knew Jesus healed him. And so he started going from village to village up in the mountains of India, where no preacher had gone before sharing the gospel. And he says, sometimes I was meet, met with garlands and praise, and other times I was met with sticks and stones. That's kind of what he's saying here is honor and dishonor. Nevertheless, the gospels preached. Some cities would welcome Paul. Other cities wanted to kill Paul. But the gospel went out. Those who are mightily used by God will find there will always be both honor and dishonor. Our Lord faced honor and dishonor. Honor from those who were open to the truth, who were hungry to hear from God, and dishonor from those who had religious expectations that were different. That's because some people have been waiting for the message of life. God's put in our hearts this hunger for truth. And others have long before rejected that wooing of the Holy Spirit and see the gospel as a threat to what they want or what they expect. Pilate attested to this. During that trial with Jesus, the scripture says he knew that they had handed him over to him, that they had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. Think of those whom God's used in our time, like Billy Graham, honored by presidents, at the same time dishonored by many who were opposed to the gospel. The same is true of politicians who want to serve God, and their goal is just to serve the people. They're honored by some and dishonored by others. And the main reason the gospel is threatening is that it demands that we humble ourselves and recognize our sin and a need for our Savior. The gospel confronts the ego of mankind. Honor and dishonor results in the next pair, slander and praise. Those who honor them will praise them, and those who dishonor them will slander them. I've experienced that to a minor degree. But one thing I noticed is that when they can't say anything about your teaching or your behavior, unless, of course, they distort it, then they go to attack your motives. To face those attacks, you have to have a clear conscience, which is essential for fighting the good fight. 
Attacking a person's motives is effective because no one knows a person's motives except God and that person themselves. So when someone insinuates they have a bad motive, people start wondering if it may be true. And you can't defend your motives other than by your sacrifices, as the Apostle Paul did here, because your sacrifices give credence to your sincerity. The third contrast was that they were treated as imposters and yet true. That gets back to the accusations of motives. These three remind us of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6, 22 and 23, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, So for so their fathers did to the prophets. If that's how they treated the prophets, we should feel honored if they do treat us in the same way and for the same reasons. Because Paul didn't receive that financial support from the Corinthians, some people accused him of not being worthy of the support. They would say something like, well, he's not one of the 12, and he's, therefore he's making things up. The accusation against, that, against Paul is still made to this day. There are numerous groups that hold that the Bible is inspired by God except for the writings of the Apostle Paul. But as I illustrated in a previous sermon, Paul's theology was the same as Jesus' theology, both of which were based on the Old Testament. Those who claim that Paul was an imposter in our day have not delved into Paul's constant and consistent quotation of scriptures to support statements that he makes nor have they done an honest comparison between Jesus' teaching and that of Paul. Additionally, they also don't have faith in an almighty God who could deliver the scriptures to us without error. To hold to their position, you would have to believe God allowed the majority of the New Testament to be corrupted. Luke wrote his gospel and Acts, which focused on the apostle Paul and was often Paul's travel companion. If anyone would have seen the difference between Jesus' teaching and Paul's, it would have been Luke. And if you disregard Luke and Paul, you throw out two-thirds of the New Testament. What's most painful to a minister of the word is not the accusations against them personally, but that those who make those accusations reject the truth. Ministers of the word live to convey the scripture and when the minister is rejected as a per person, the grief that they feel is that the truth they proclaim is rejected. That's what Paul's concerned about and the reason that he's defending his message. It's not about him, but about the message he proclaims, being received for the glory of God. Verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed. Paul was with the Corinthians for um, quite a while, over, over a year and a half, and they knew him well. And yet the false teachers seemed to have, have the Corinthians doubting that they really knew who they knew him to be. 
That's why chapter three started with, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? It was like they forgot who Paul was. Luke records that Paul told the Ephesian church, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Though Paul was only half that time in Corinth, he was assuredly the same with them, admonishing them day and night with tears. So it must have been difficult for Paul to accept that these false teachers had so readily caused the Corinthians to doubt his heart. As dying and yet we live, maybe Paul was referring to being stoned at Lystra and then rising from the dead. Or is he speaking of dying daily to self and living in Jesus? The passage doesn't really make which one clear, which makes me think he might be referring to both. Most importantly, they had abundant spiritual life in Christ. The next pair, punish but not kill, emphasize physical punishment. Sometimes they were beaten with rods. Later, he'll be beaten by a mob in the outer court of the temple. Time and time again, they were physically ex uh, assaulted for proclaiming Jesus as the way to God. And yet, they knew they would not die until they had finished their race and completed the mission God had called them to do. When we look at their example, how can we complain about a little verbal abuse or even rejection by a family member? Paul declared in his letter to Timothy that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Open Doors, the organization Open Doors, in 2023, their World Watch list reported that 360 million Christians around the world suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. Since 1993, the number of nations that experience extreme persecution has gone from 40 to 76, nearly doubling. In 2022, 5,621 Christians were martyred. 90% of that was with, in northern Nigeria. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. This is the last trio of contrasts. They were sorrowful. We can see another connection with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you see people not receiving the glorious truth of the gospel, or people who you pour your life into go back into the world, it brings great sorrow of heart. It's not just that they reject our love, but they rejected God and his gracious offer of salvation. And we know the end of that decision will be worse than they ever imagined. We know the lie of self-indulgence only ends in suffering. And that's the last thing that we would want for them. We also are sorrowful for those who suffer physically or emotionally because we share the heart of God who cares about our pain and suffering. Paul said he would have sorrow upon sorrow if Epaphroditus had 
had not survived. You see, a selfish person abhors the thought of entering into someone else's pain. But we believers go there because of God's heart in us. We weep with those who weep. At the same, same time, we are always rejoicing because we cast our burdens on the Lord. We know he hears our prayers. We know he alone can take calamity and bring good from it. Even when we cannot understand his hand, we know his heart. We know how great his love is for us. Our sorrow is great, but our consolation is even greater. As poor, but making many rich. Here we have one more connection with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Christians are not always poor, but it seems that many of them are. Most of the early church consisted of slaves. Now, not many Christians can be trusted with wealth. Desperation can cause us to seek the Lord. Wealth can cause us to depend on our financial position rather than upon God. It takes someone solid in their faith to be wealthy and yet to serve God. Jesus declared that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they said, well, who then, Lord, can be saved? Jesus told them, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen, Amen because most of us are rich compared to what they're talking about here. If you compare our status of living with the rest of the world, we all are rich. So it's only a miracle of God that any of us is saved. Amen? Salvation's a miracle of God. We should be extremely grateful that God would save even us. And yet, we should always be aware of how money can easily become an idol and something that we depend on. I think Paul started off wealthy by the world's standards of that day, and yet in his service to the Lord, he became poor. Though they were poor, they made many rich. A person in poverty can be the richest person on earth spiritually. We do not have to be rich to share the true wealth. Our greatest treasure is our relationship with Christ. It's worth more than all the world has to offer, Amen. as we just sang about. The last contrast is that we seem to have nothing that the world has to offer, and yet we have everything. That's because we're in Christ who has all things. Everything comes from him. The meek shall inherit the earth. Our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Sometimes we just wish that he'd sell one of them and help us out. <laughs> but he does in his perfect time. He always provides. If we are in need, we go to our Heavenly Father who will provide what we need, not necessarily what we want, and he'll do it when we need it. What security we have in Jesus. In fact, we of all people are the most secure that's because whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 11, 
We have spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Paul didn't hold back sharing anything that was in his heart. He told them exactly how he felt. He had nothing to hide. His love for them was unselfish, and it was personally cost, cost a lot to him to love them to that degree. He could only say this because he truly loved them and his conscience was clear. He is an example for all of us in dealing with the family of God. Your labor of love will sometimes be misunderstood. Your motives will be questioned. Not everyone will appreciate what you're trying to do for them. And nevertheless, we are commanded to love one another. Paul was practicing what he preached. The love he had for the church was from God. And though he addressed their lack of love, he did not love them any less. They grieved his heart, and he didn't love them less. Let us be determined to let God do the same miraculous work in us. Amen? We pray for miracles, but one of the greatest miracles is when a human can overlook another human's faults and be like Jesus is to us. Genuinely concerned for others' welfare, giving freely of our time, and if necessary, our finances as well. Many of you have been a great example of this in caring for the elderly as they go through their last stages of life. I believe God's glorified in that as much as in some missionary on a dangerous field. We tend to look at those who are accomplishing great things and, and think they're more special, they're unique, they're, they're God's favored ones, but I'm sure God is just as glorified and blessed by the quiet acts of selfless giving and service that go on within a Christian community. For it's God who accomplishes the work through us. And everything he does is special. Even Jesus declared, the Father who dwells in me does his work. That's John 14, 10. Just think what a glorious thing it is for God to work through you, helping you to be selfless instrument in his hands. May the unconditional love of Christ flow through us to a world in need. Verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Paul's saying that his team is not forcing them to do anything, holding back any love from them. They're not demanding they do something about their lack of love. They are asking them to receive that immoral brother since he's repented. Paul is asking them to consider the need to restore their attitude toward him and his team but he's not going to withhold his love, even if they don't. His heart is wide open to them. The issue being addressed is that the church had restricted their affection toward Paul due to the influence of these false teachers. Some of the congregation in Corinth were the ones withholding the love that Jesus commanded us to have towards one another. They were not reciprocating the love that Paul had for them. Verse 13, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. 
Paul concludes with a plea to the church to respond to the love and sacrifice that he has for them by widening their hearts. Do you ever feel that the Lord was asking you to widen your heart towards somebody that you're not getting along with or somebody that just annoys you? To widen your heart because of his love for them. He wrote to them as a father to his beloved children. Respond to that love with love. Refuse to think you know others' motives and think the best of them. As Paul told the Philippians, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine if we all did that? It would sure attract people because it's so different from the world. And the world has to see some difference in us. What a command, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul explained that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. What an example of love he set out for us and how to respond to those who have hardened their hearts towards us. We should never respond by hardening our hearts in return. If Christ is in us, we must respond with his love. We must continue to have loving concern for them and always keep the door open to reconciliation. That's our ministry we just read about in the previous chapter. We must let the love and life of Christ be manifest in our mortal bodies if we are going to glorify God. I want to close with a quote from Pastor Kent Hughes. He writes, It's the same for us today. We commend the gospel to our families and the church and the world by our faithful endurance. The call to follow Christ is a call to endure in sufferings by the graces of the Spirit through righteousness, riding the triumphal, exultant paradoxes of Christ and thereby demonstrating that our faith in Christ is real and that he is worth our full allegiance. I'm going to read that last part again. The call to follow Christ is a call to endure sufferings by the graces of the Spirit through righteousness, writing the triumphal, exultant paradoxes of Christ and thereby demonstrating that our faith in Christ is real and that he is worthy of our full allegiance. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you give us a closing song and then I'll bring the benediction.